think in the end I've always been driven by a fear of wimping out, that my natural instinct is not to apply and not to attempt something. And in order to try and defeat that, I've always pushed myself to do it. Hello and welcome back to Beautiful Lives, the podcast in which I, Madeleine Spencer, invite a guest to share some of the challenges they've faced and triumphs they've enjoyed during their life, as well as touching on the relationship between their inner and outer self and where beauty memories and rituals have had an impact. Today, I'm joined by the journalist and former Vogue editor-in-chief, Alexandra Shulman, to talk about a host of things, including her panic attacks, being fired, how she balanced motherhood and a huge job, the invariable letdown when meeting one's idols, finding renewed enthusiasm for makeup after leaving Vogue, and why she partnered with Number 7 to produce six affordable and beautifully packaged, it has to be said, makeup kits. This episode is sponsored by the Australian tooth whitening brand High Smile, whose new and improved teeth whitening kit is incredibly easy to use and really works to brighten teeth without triggering pain or sensitivity. They're offering Beautiful Lives listeners 20% of all High Smile products for a limited time with the code BEAUTIFUL. That's B-E-A-U-T-Y-F-U-L-L. If you'd like to give the kit a whirl for yourself at a reduced price. All the info is in the show notes, so do head there if you'd like to know more. Or keep listening to hear more about my experience with High Smile later in the show. Here's Alex. So, you grew up in Belgravia, the daughter of a writer and etiquette coach, dad, a Canadian author, journalist and critic. Was it a very literary and arts-centric childhood, and did beauty rituals, or beauty products indeed, play any role in your household? It was a very um, arty household, I would say, rather than kind of literary household, because my dad went to the theatre most nights to review plays, and she was working in magazines, and, and always loved, both of them loved contemporary art, so we were brought up surrounded by a lot of contemporary art, and books about art, and photography, things like that. So um, I think that's been hugely influential um, in all of our lives, actually. But that's not to say that um, beauty was not a part of it. And my mum didn't wear... Well, when in, in the 60s, she wore a lot of makeup, I think. Mm-hmm. But, but eye makeup and lipstick, I don't think she's ever worn any kind of base, foundation. But she always had this product by a woman who was a Hungarian woman, like many of those Eastern European women who, you know, like the Helena Rubinstein and Estee Lauder, who started her own company called Countess Charki. And um, Countess Charki was a facialist and she made her own product. And mum always used her... um, It was like a kind of... Vaseline based sort of gunky cleansing cream that she used every night and then various face creams she used of hers Mm -hmm. but I don't remember any other kind of real loyalty to to brands other than that. And the 60s as you mentioned was quite a fixed time for beauty there were the eyelashes those Jules Sassoon haircuts did that really impress itself on your young mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I had an absolute disastrous one of those haircuts when, about the age of 10, um, a Vidal Sassoon haircut. And uh, I think my mum must have thought it was a good idea. I'm sure I didn't think it was a good idea. I had it all chopped off with a kind of asymmetric kind of bob, which looked terrible on a very round face. And um, 
Makeup, though, I was more influenced a bit later on. It was much more sort of late 60s, early 70s, that mm-hmm. kind of Bieber period. Very pale skin, you know, um, deep plum eye makeup, mm-hmm. lipstick, black nail polish, um, much more kind of romantic goth kind of thing. And were you covetous? Did you think, if I could just get my hands on that one Bieber palette, my life would be significantly better? As some I think say. I still feel like that. Oh, I really? still see hope in a, you know, in a lipstick all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the things I always do if I'm sort of feeling a bit low. I'll always go out and actually normally buy a lipstick. It's, it tends to be the thing I'll buy. But I always think it's not to do with the colour of the lipstick. It is sort of the feel, a feeling that it's going to make your life all right. You've talked about your father telling teachers you couldn't eat potatoes. Well... What I feel about it is that, you know, I was somebody who always had a tendency to be fatter rather than thinner. Um, And oddly, my dad was quite chubby and he used to bang on about it. And he was always like, you know, Alexandra, you've put on weight. And my mum, I think when I was little, you know, she she did worry that Mm -hmm. I was going to get too fat and that, you know, I was eating too many biscuits or whatever. So... Mm -hmm. She uh, did make, certainly did make a thing of it, but the weird thing is that it's sort of almost had the converse effect on me, which is that I'm very um, unobsessed with weight myself, and I kind of I just didn't really pay any attention to what they were saying. It never, it never bothered me in the way that it bothers so many people. When you were a teenager, you were quite involved, well, quite into music. Uh, who have you said that you liked? Was it Patti Smith? Oh, and... yeah, millions of people. Yeah, loads of them. And teenagers being quite tribal, I wonder if they informed the way you wanted to look around that age. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I wanted to be, first of all, I suppose the kind of hippie ideal, really, that was the sort of the Leonard Cohen woman. Then I, then there was Patti Smith and um, wanting to be that kind of slightly punky androgyne kind of look uh it only went on interestingly that that feeling of wanting to look like the music I liked until I was probably sort of the end of being a teenager it's interesting I think everyone is affected by the music that they heard when they were kind of 15 or 16 it's still the music I most love you know Bob Dylan, Neil Young, those kind of people even though I've carried on following music now but I I have no desire to want to look like Beyonce or Rihanna (laughs) but I love their music and for you then assimilating to that idea ideal rather was that something that you would do with makeup and were you playing with your hair did you colour your hair yeah hair hair more than makeup actually so henna Mm -hmm. um lots of plaits I had very very long hair Mm -hmm. um after the Vidal Sassoon had grown out. After yeah. the Vidal Sassoon, yeah. I never cut it again, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I was very kind of, you know, kind of Pocahontas looking in two braids or lots of little plaits to get waves. And mm-hmm. when I was at university, a lot of henna. Um, and yes, but not, and um, there was something called um, molten browners, which were these kind of pipe cleaners, you know, mm-hmm. that you could wind your hair around in um so yeah I used to play around with my hair as a teenager well and music and makeup and I remember and I'm still searching for a kind of um 
satisfactory contemporary version. So if you know one, mm. tell me. I used to have this fantastic kind of gel mask that you go. Of course, one had flawless skin then, so it's ridiculous why I was wearing any mask. But you know, put on a it was like a turquoise kind of gel mask, and you let it dry, and then you peeled it off really satisfactorily. It came off though; it didn't come off in tiny little nasty bits. It mm. came off as a peel. And I used to do that every Saturday night. I think you can still get them in boots, but I, I always used to struggle to leave it long enough to peel it off yeah. in one sheet. Yeah, that was right. always the dream. But to yeah, me, one, one bit would dry and I'd pull it off. Yeah, in. but if you could even get half a cheek off, it'd yes. be something, rather than just bits that then get left, actually. It is the best feeling, yeah. pulling, a, pulling a whole sheet off. Um, boots, I think, southern okay. sashes. I don't think they're terribly good for your skin, though, but they are fun. Fun. Yeah, fun good thing when good. you have perfect skin and yeah. it's low risk. You didn't like your experience of being at Sussex very much. You had, am I right in thinking you had glandular fever there? Yes. And you were quite keen to, to quit and yes. to leave. What stopped you from quitting and why the didn't parents, you like your okay. parents stopped me from quitting? They just would not let me leave. And um, so I read social anthropology at Sussex. Mm. And the first year I was there, I was very happy. Second year, for a number of reasons, I was very unhappy um, and got glandular fever. Um, and. If it had been left to me, I would have. I would have left, but they were just like, "No, you're not going. To, you'll regret it all your life if you don't finish it. If you don't get a degree," and they just kind of pushed and pushed and pushed mm. me to carry on there. And are you glad that you stuck it out, or would you have left now if you could um, go back? I'm sort of mixed on it. I do think there is something to be said for having stuck something out, um, and I think. N- they were right in that. Whether or not in the end it was really worth it to do that, I'm not sure. Whether mm-hmm. maybe I, I wouldn't have been just as well off leaving and, and going to do something else, I'm not quite so sure about. But it was complicated. I I had glandular fever and I also had very bad panic attacks. And so they were all filling into that second year and feeling bad about it so Mm. I really didn't do a second year I did a third year that's very challenging at any age but at that particular age before you started your career and when you're wondering what you might be and how you might move forward in life it can be really quite ruinous for some people so what is it in you that gave you the ability to then push through and to keep trying well I think lots of young people find that period very difficult, um, particularly now. Mm. So I don't think I'm by any means unusual in having sort of got, got through it. Um, and as I say, probably, you know, having parents who just wanted me... Well, they wanted me to get a degree, and then after having got a degree, I, you know, I wanted to earn money. I mean, I wanted a job and a career and earning money, so mm. that was... But I, I don't think it was particularly unusual to do what I did. Then you went on to work in the music industry. Yes, very briefly. Were you twice fired? Is that twice right? fired okay. in the year, yes. It was a bit of a confidence blow, but not really, because I think you know when something's right in often so many areas of your life. And I kind of knew in those jobs that I probably wasn't in the place that I was really going to end up. Mm-hmm. So... Although it was inconvenient and upsetting and a bit humiliating to lose, you know, the first jobs I had, um, it wasn't sort of the end of the world. It wasn't like being fired for a job that you'd spent your whole life aspiring to have. You then went on to work at the Tatler under Tina Brown. Yeah. How was that experience? 
it was fun. I mean, it was so fun in those days. We had a great time and it was filled with really good journalists and it was a small magazine, but it was sort of on the up and it was like one of those places where it punched well above its weight. So although it didn't have a big circulation, mm. within the industry, everyone was looking at it to see you know, what they were publishing. And um, I was there for about five years, working my way you know, quite slowly up the, up the masthead, but um, had a fantastic time, yeah. And that was in the 80s, so you worked both in the music industry and in magazines in the 80s. And the 80s are a sort of fabled era for excess anyway. How did you look at that point, and was all the colour and the kind of embellishment, was that affecting you and the way you dressed a lot? Um, no, not really. I mean, I, I didn't uh, didn't wear very much makeup actually. The beauty was not a big thing for me in in that period of my life, as far mm. as I recall. I had a perm, um, <laughs> and it was great actually. It looked really, really nice. Um, so I must have had my hair a bit shorter then. Like a Charlene in Neighbours perm, or a kind no. of slightly more moderate. No, perm. it was a kind of more just to give it a bit of curl. It wasn't mm-hmm. a kind of real. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't a real kind of perm like that. Um, and clothes. Uh, yeah, I guess I must have worn some. I mean, I wore things like bat wing sleeves mm-hmm. and you know leggings and over-the-knee boots. and But I was never part of a sort of 80s tribe like a New Romantic okay. or a Blitz kid. I was never that kind of art schooly 80s. And I've always been more skewed towards a kind of romantic sort of hippie ideal mm-hmm. than, than that. Actually, all my clothes were second-hand. I bought them all in Portobello then. Okay. So they were mainly kind of old 50s dresses. So you kind of stuck to your teenage guns. Yes. Yeah. And then you went in at 34 to edit Vogue. Did it feel huge at the time to you? Well, it must have done, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. But it, it, my memory is not so much that. Um, I'd worked on Vogue before for two years as their features editor. I edited GQ for two years previous mm-hmm. to that. And it was within the company that I'd been working for most of my life. So it wasn't a totally kind of different space to be. Mm-hmm. Um I think it was frightening, but it was frightening more for kind of personal reasons than it was because I was worried about whether I could do the job. It was more like, um, it's such a big job. You know, am I going to want to work that hard to some extent? Am I going to want to be that person, be so committed? And I was quite ambivalent about applying for the job but I think in the end I've always been driven by a fear of wimping out that my natural instinct is not to apply and not to attempt something and in order to try and defeat that I've always had pushed myself to do it which is probably part of the earlier question that you asked Mm. actually you know why didn't I sort of slightly give up um when I wasn't enjoying it and was feeling ill. I think a a fear of doing that is what keeps me always moving on. If you gave anyone now the job of being editor of Vogue, one of the first references that would flash into their mind was Devil Wears Prada, um, maybe Manali Blanix, Jimmy Choo, you know, it would all be kind of almost more about the accessories than the job itself. 
Was it like that at the time, or is that something that's come latterly in the sort of 2000s no, interpretation? No, no, it wasn't like that at all. Okay. It's not to say that there weren't brand associations. There were, and people were, um, you know, passionate about uh, big fashion brands and what was happening in fashion. But, well, it was never the way I looked at it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it always amazes me, that Devil Wears Prada thing, because I kind of like... Well, it was a nice film, but it wasn't that amazing. And it's had such resonance. It's really stuck with people, that kind of... And I don't know what it is about it. I can't... I think there's always mystique around magazine work, isn't there? Maybe not so much now, but particularly maybe 10 years ago, it was the idea that someone walks in and they have this life that's meant to look a certain way and feel a certain way too. There aren't many jobs. For all jobs, you have to look appropriate or assimilate somehow to the role. But there aren't many jobs where it requires you to be fashionable or to, mm. or to Funnily dress enough, up. Funnily enough, I've been um, just handed in a book which has been published in um, okay. April. And quite a lot of what I've been writing about is is that, the, you know, the, the kind of disconnect often mm. between how you're meant to look and how you do look or that you might look the part but mm. it's not what you feel and all of that. And yeah. you're right, I think magazines, that uh, remains a very, very big issue in working mm. in fashion, actually, not just magazines. I think it's, you know, in, if you work in fashion houses too. How did you then choose to look in the role when you were your professional self what was going on your face what did your hair look like what were the the main tenets for you it seems odd but I really didn't think that much about it I mean I was had been very successful looking and being the way I was and I didn't really feel that there was any reason why editing Vogue was should be any different Mm -hmm. to how to how I had been so I don't think I was aware of Possibly how peculiar some people thought I was, or my attitude was. Um, as time went by, you know, I got more used to the idea of sort of getting my hair done for occasions, getting hair and makeup done. Certainly, makeup for, mm-hmm. you know, if you were going to be photographed, um, it was always something I didn't really like doing, just because it it took up time that I was wanting, you know, to be doing something else. When you say it takes up time, yes, it absolutely does. But to some people, that's rewarded by the thing when you look in the mirror and you go, ooh, this is my ideal self, I feel great. Is that something that happens to you? Or do you just feel that you've assumed the appropriate exterior appearance for what you want to do? Well, the the really weird thing is that I think while I was at Vogue, I felt the latter, just that it was like putting on a coat or something. Mm -hmm. And something that would you take off and you put on, and it didn't really have anything that much to do with me. Since I've left the magazine, um, I felt spent far more time engaged in in makeup. Um, you know, putting it on, buying it. Um, you know, the the boots collaboration that I that I'd done was a sort of. I mean, it's oddly timely because it came about at a moment where actually I was really beginning to enjoy playing with makeup and they sent me like all their product to go through and look at. And I just, I, I thought all my Christmases had come at once. I wouldn't have felt that way about being sent that. I mean, I, I could, have, could have gone into the beauty cupboard at Vogue and taken anything I wanted at any time. It very rarely gave me any pleasure or interest to do it. Whereas now I feel... Mm much more excited by it, more free to 
experiment, I think. But you must have been absolutely bombarded by requests to come in and try a treatment or have your hair done or anything. Was there anything you found during that time where you thought, I'm really glad I went in to have that? The uh, the facialist, Vishali Patel, Mm -hmm. and uh, she gave me a lymphatic drainage facial, Mm -hmm. which, you know, which she did sort of to say, you know, I'd like you to try it. And I did. And, you know, I now... You know, I swear by that. I think she's absolutely brilliant. And it's sort of the one... I mean, I haven't unfortunately had it for about six months, if not a year, but because I could do with it. You know, so that was a discovery. I think she she is really, really good at that. Um, Other than that, in terms of treatment, no, because I did very, very few. Um, Really hardly ever took anybody up on those offers. Um, Because you're too busy or because you weren't interested? Both. During your time at Vogue, you had your son, Samuel, but you yeah. went back to work pretty quickly. And yeah, then but you... you did in those right. days. I took 16 weeks of mm-hmm. uh, maternity leave, and that was thought of as really pushing the boat out. But you also wrote an article saying that a year is quite a long time to take out of your career and then to go back. Yes. Do you think that that's changed then? Oh, it's changed so much. I mean, changed out of all recognition that the attitudes to, to maternity leave are radically different. Mm-hmm. And I mean... Listen, I took 16 weeks and that was meant to be a long time. My mum, who had three children, there was no maternity leave. I mean, she was typing articles, having had a baby with the typewriter on her stomach in hospital, you know, after having had a, straight after having had a baby. Because she thought she'd lose her job if she didn't just carry on you mm. know, working. So, I mean, we have progressed a long way. I do think it's really complicated I do still have issues with long maternity leave. I think it is difficult. Um, And I don't quite know what the solution is to Mm. that. Mm. I really don't. You've touched on having had panic attacks earlier in your life, and you also had them then in 2004 when you were going through your divorce. What did you find helped you with that? There's a lot of talk around mental health now, but... Not so much about people who have very high-powered jobs and a lot going on and how you... Medication. Medication definitely helps. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I would say to anybody, don't, you know, don't knock it. Mm -hmm. Um, Do whatever it takes to... uh, I was lucky to have very good doctors and so I was quite privileged in that way. I mean, somebody who had the kind of sort of panic disorder, I would say that that I have and um, that, you know, bubbles up very infrequently now, luckily. But, you know, I, if I hadn't had the access to, to the doctors I had access to, it would be, would have been ghastly. And I, you know, I heard the other day, I was listening to the radio about, you know, the idea that if you, you know, to, to get a kind of an appointment can be, if it was nine weeks or if it was nine months but anyway it was whatever it was was so way too long I mean nine weeks is too long you know if you're really really terrified Um, I've suffered quite badly from panic disorder and panic attacks and to me it manifests itself as an inability to leave the house or rather challenges leaving the house and leaving safety zones aside from the panic that you feel in you how did it affect your life well, when I was at university, one of the reasons why I couldn't be found the university was difficult was because I had to come back to London because I wasn't well, and therefore I had to get to university. 
But because I didn't want to be at university, it manifested itself as becoming phobic about the train. So um, somebody had to come with me, my mm -hmm. sister or my mother or my brother had to travel with me and come and pick me up. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, delightful yeah. for everyone. Um, and then another stage I was, yes, both agoraphobic and claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. So uh, as you say, I've always felt safest at home in, in the house, not necessarily totally safe, but mm -hmm. safest. But I mean, I clearly remember being in a hospital and with this and looking at the bus stop and just thinking, how am I ever going to be able to walk out and get to that bus stop? And, you know, it is, as I'm sure you know, it's kind of, you've got to get yourself out the door. And if you do two steps, mm. that's something. You come back yeah. and the next day you can't face it. So maybe you do one step and then the next day you can do five steps. Mm. And it's, I think it's just that pushing Pushing on through the terror is what you, you really have to do because I think panic and fear is very insidious and if you if you do let yourself give into it, if you can possibly stop yourself giving into it, it, mm. it does help in the long run. Am I right in thinking you don't love flying? Yeah. When you're working at a magazine, you have to go abroad and you have to do a lot of that. Mm. Um, did you have coping strategies or would you take Again, some medication? Okay. I mean, I used to take Valium when I first started, but it made me feel very dopey afterwards. It wasn't mm. brilliant, particularly combined with the alcohol I'd drink on the plane. Yeah. Um, and then in later years, I took Xanax. Mm -hmm. And um, more recently, I did hypnotherapy, which I'd done many times and hadn't worked, but the last time I did it, it worked like magic, absolutely incredible. Um, I had to fly to Japan for work, to Tokyo, for two days, and it wasn't an option not to go, but I just couldn't imagine how I could get on the plane. So somebody suggested uh, this hypnotist, and um, I went to him, I had about ten sessions, and... It worked. I could do it. You're quite open about this now. Were you open about it at the time? Yeah. Okay. Because mm. it wasn't very spoken about. No, and I've always been. I've always been open about it. The one thing, the one thing was I wrote. I wrote an article about sort of anxiety uh, for the magazine, and another member of my staff, my deputy at the time, said she didn't think I should publish it. That it wasn't a good idea. You know, that it would be sort of. And I didn't, and that that was many years ago now. I mean, that mm -hmm. must have been about, I don't know, 12 years ago or mm -hmm. something. Um, so I never never did publish that. Um, but no, I've never had any problem telling people about it. Can we talk about some of the criticisms that are levelled at magazines a lot, particularly airbrushing and sizeism and things like that? I think the assumption from people who have never worked in magazines is that as an editor, you could change all of that in a week and you could just say, yes, okay, we want bigger sizes and we'll have this and yeah. that. In fashion magazines, you're part of an enormous kind of ecosystem mm -hmm. um, that's very, very connected. So you're talking about designers, photographers, models, model agents, hair, makeup, um, fashion editors or stylists. Um, and I could not alone, as editor of Vogue, decided to say I'm not going to use any of the models that everybody thinks are the most important and interesting models of the day because I think they're too thin and I'm going to pluck out 
five bigger girls and make mm-hmm. them into stars. I mean, that just would not have happened. Um, everybody would have said, well, where's Linda Evangelista or Christy Turnington or Claudia mm-hmm. Schiffer or, you know, whoever it was. Um, so you can't just, as a sole voice, you can't... Um, you can't single-handedly change things. You can decide that you're going to take a point of view and um, and a stand, and it's something that my successor Edward's done with the idea of kind of racial diversity. And you know, he uses models all the time who are models of colour who nobody's heard of or recognised, and you know, he's trying to give them a a platform and you know and I, and I think is succeeding in doing so and I think that's um that's great and also it's part of the times that we live in you know so many things are changing so I feel like you you do what you can do so mm-hmm. my contribution really was more about um trying to use a broader range of people within the magazine not the models mm-hmm. but every other kind of tried to represent women who worked in all kinds of different spheres mm-hmm. and and show them looking wearing fashion yeah. and looking like they were happy to be dressed up in fashion. I always felt that when people talk about the or would talk about the inaccessibility of Vogue that they maybe hadn't read it because yeah. actually when you got inside they were really human stories and yeah. people were talking about a huge variety of things it wasn't just someone a model looking really airbrushed and perfect but that was the font cover yeah so yeah. my my Vogue was very much about real was very much about real women it was not to chuck out the wonderful um sort of uh, construct that are fashion images and something where you are making something that is a sort of imaginary world mm-hmm. and putting it on the page. But within that, I always wanted to have women talking about how they felt about what they dressed, what they actually wore, um, how, you know, their work and their clothes and, you know, your, your sort of every woman's voice was something that was very much part of what what I bought to the magazine and um yeah and I think it's less there now because that's not that particular priority you do what you you can't do everything you can't do everything yeah. you have to choose what Completely. you want to do exactly you stay for 25 years you've spoken a lot about your writing I know that you absolutely love writing and crafting words is something that's really in you and yet editing is definitely not writing and it takes up a lot of time you have to be quite bureaucratic and quite aware of the business side 25 years is a long time to stay in that place of slight tension. What made you do it for that long? Well, it's a really good question. And one I think about quite a lot now, I'm not doing it. And, you know, looking back, um, there was a fork in the road in my career where I could have, in the 80s, when I was, you know, still very young, where I got offered a job at 27 or 26 to go to the Sunday Telegraph and be women's what was called the women's page editor then. And at the time, I was kind of, as it were, sort of one of the star writers on Tatler, and I was doing all the big interviews and things like that. And I took that editor job because it was going to pay me a lot more money and I wanted a mortgage to buy a flat. Mm-hmm. And I think it was making that decision that was a real fork in the road because once I was there, then I never really went back to to 
to the main job being writing, because I went back to Vogue as a features mm -hmm. editor, where I did do some writing, but one of the things I feel about editing is that you sort of have to put your energy into making other people create the best things they can. That That's your job, really. Mm -hmm. So, although I did bits and pieces of writing, always, I never wrote that much or found it... Um, didn't ever find it very easy writing for myself. Why did I stay doing that? Um, because it's a wonderful job editing Vogue. It was... Um, it was it was sort of it was so interesting and it was always changing. It was never like you were just putting out a magazine because in that role you were always a spokesman for quite a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, you had a kind of power which I enjoyed and authority. You worked with really interesting people. Then I had a child, and I was the breadwinner, and. Um, I think then sort of it just it was also. It was a life that I, I, I could do it. I could look after Sam. I knew how to do it. I knew I could do the job. I could sort of work my time around it so it suited him and me. And I don't know, 25 years just went past. I didn't really realise how long it was. As promised, I thought I'd tell you a little bit more about how I came to use High Smile. So I was working at a magazine and we were all brainstorming about who could be trusted with teeth for a feature and a senior editor who has excellent teeth, by the way, said she used High Smile and really rated their teeth whitening kits. So I got my hands on one and I was really taken by how easy it was to use. All you do is fit the LED light to the tray, pop some gel in, put it in your mouth and switch the light on. It's so simple. I didn't feel any sensitivity afterwards and following the suggested six sessions, my teeth were noticeably brighter. So much so that when my friend Emma told me she wanted to use an at-home system before her wedding, I gave her a kit of her own and she was also really impressed. If you'd like to get your hands on a kit with 20% off, enter the code BEAUTIFUL at checkout. That's B-E-A-U-T-Y-F-U-L-L. All the info and a link will be in the show notes. Thank you for powering today's episode. Hi, Smile. So let's come to now, post Vogue, you've got more time to play with makeup, more time to enjoy yourself. You, you've said you love makeup, and I want to know, actually I want to know what from the collection you use, but I'd also like to know on an average day, what you would grab, what's on your shelf. Okay, so on an average day, are we talking makeup or are we talking all beauty products? Let's go from getting up, Okay. I assume you've brushed your teeth and showered, okay. and then go from Brush there. Brush your teeth and showered. So, um... It's really shocking thing to say, but I've never been a great one for cleaning my face. Um, and I do not take my makeup off at night. But you've never had difficult skin? No. Fine. No. I don't so you've got away with it, effectively. Or, yeah. maybe because I haven't, maybe it's made yeah. my skin better. <laughs> um, no, I think I've been genetically sort of quite lucky with my skin. Um, but now, there's a product, you know, Wildsmith? Yes. And I absolutely love their um, their cleanser. So I do now, you know, it's got it's a sort of lovely smell of rosemary and lavender. And it's just like the same gunky stuff as my mum used to have from right. Countess Charcutes. Um, and so I clean my face in the morning with the hot towel. Um, so I do do that now. It's an Excellent. improvement. <laughs> um, and then on a good day, I will put some kind of 
eye cream and moisturiser on, but I don't always do that. SPF? No. No. I'm afraid. <laughs> I mean, they all have F- SPF yeah, they in them, don't they? But, you know, I'm not aware of it. And then... Um, well, if I'm just at home and, and really not going anywhere, then mm-hmm. I won't put any makeup on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're a runner, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, so do you run in the park? Though? Yeah. That's a nightmare. Why is it? Well, nightmare? because you know you come back and your face, you know, you're sweating. Yeah, your face starts again. Um, yeah. Hair is more of a problem. It's a real problem the running and the mm-hmm. hair because um, I just haven't solved that problem. I mean, if I want my hair to look nice, I can't run because I can't run and wash my hair and then my hair look nice. So you know. How many days a week do you do it? Approximately. Well, because of my cold, I haven't done it for a week, which is really, really bad. Mm. Even not doing it for a week is, you know, you go backwards. I mean, I don't run for very long. How long? Half an hour. Okay. I do about 5K, mm-hmm. um, maybe a bit longer on a weekend. Uh, try and do it three three times a week, but mm-hmm. it's more often too. Yeah. Um, but I, I get up in the morning um, before before doing all that face cleansing mm-hmm. and put on the day programme on the radio and go running. Are you an early riser? Relatively. What yes. kind of time would you do? Um, half past six. Okay. Seven. So you're in the park running and then you come back. Then you I come back, then I do, yourself, do whatever. Then yeah. I don't put any makeup on if I'm not doing anything. Yes. Um, if I do, I will put on... Um, there's a Boots Primer that I'm using, number seven. It's like Airbrush Away Primer. Mm-hmm. I know the one. Which it's I think is really good. Yeah. Um, and I'm struggling a bit with with foundation at the moment, actually, because I have I feel I haven't quite got the right one at the moment. So mm-hmm. I sometimes use Armani, but mm-hmm. I sort of run out. I've got to actually literally this afternoon. I've got to go out and and find mm-hmm. some more. But it's finding something that's gives coverage without it being too dense because as you get older also it just it's actually aging to have too much on so i like um by terry concealer which i often use yes yeah yeah and i use that instead of foundation but that's perfectly fine yeah and just put it over the red bit yeah thing i'm looking for a miracle for under my eyes because um i haven't found that yet have you ever found anything that does a good job? Not really, not really, really. I mean, I think I am looking for a miracle. It would just, you know, because the the bags are there and I'm looking for something to hide them. I, everyone used to use Touche Eclat and I've never found a way to make that work for me. So I think for that Clinique um, airbrush concealer is quite good. It's okay. on a wand like Touche Eclat yeah. and it's liquid. Right. Um, and you can pat it in. It's not, it, do, it won't settle into lines. Yeah, and that's it's not the too, problem. Yeah. It can go caking in. Yeah, so this one's on. very, very thin. And you can put two layers on if you want to or just yeah. one. It's very good for that. What's try it that called? one. Clinique, Clinique airbrush. Okay. I'll write it down for you for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it's very good that one. But speaking of lines, you're not someone who's gone in massively for surgery. Have you had any surgery done at no. all? No. What is it that's made you decide not to do that? Because it's kind of ubiquitous now. Well, I wrote a piece about it the other day, actually, in the Mail on Sunday, where I do a column and I wrote the lead about the fact that for the first time in my life, mm. I'm beginning to think, is it sort of perverse not to do it? Because it's so ubiquitous. You know, you've got this option out there mm-hmm. to make yourself look better, aka younger. Yeah. Um, and is it strange not to, you know, not to to do any of it when when you could? So I don't know. It's uh, it's just a, I feel 
uncomfortable with doing something interventionist to my body that means that it's somehow kind of disguising what I really am. I have a sort of Dorian Gray feeling about it, that, you know, somewhere this person, this sort of old crone will be there underneath it all and you're wearing a kind of mask which is it's crazy and in fact you know what you find as you get older is that you know it is gravity that causes the problem so it's it's not that I've got lots of kind of wrinkles it's just lines that go down and you know you look much more happy and nice if you don't have those those lines so but I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll change my mind at some point, but I've got this far. I'm not sure I will. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about the number seven collaboration. Yeah. Then. So you started working on that a year ago. I started working with them in October 2018. Okay, yeah. so it's quite a long time to it be has pulling been things a long together. Time, yeah. So when you got that massive, massive Box. load of products, yeah. what drew you towards certain products, and what were you aiming to do? Well, it wasn't quite like that. They they approached me because um, they were interested in the idea of a sort of fashion element being brought to their makeup, and so they asked me to come up with um, some ideas, really, for a sort of a packaging concept. Is what it came down to. Mm-hmm. Um, which would also have product with it, but but the packaging was important. So that's what I started working on, and I came up with quite a lot of ideas, and then it boiled down to the eventual two we did, because the one was, in my mind, called graphic, because there's always that in fashion. There there are two sort of hardy perennials. There's kind of quite modern, linear graphic designs, and then there's a much more romantic kind of thing. And I thought, well, if it... If it's going to take a long time, I can't do a totally on-trend thing because it'll be off-trend by the time Mm -hmm. I do it. So the packaging was what we worked on first. And then then it was a question of what, you know, what kind of makeup story Mm -hmm. to put in it. So um, I was attracted to put in products. Well, I I wanted to put in the odd thing that was quite kind of not absolutely every day that was, you know, sort of maybe stronger coloured mm-hmm. so that people would feel that they were having a bit of fun with it rather than it being purely neutral. I think in the end, number seven have changed... The, I mean, I know they swapped some of what was my original choices mm-hmm. for things that I think they felt would be more popular and, and why not? I'm all for people wanting what's in there. I've just used the sugar plum lipstick and yeah. I was wearing that over the weekend. And actually that is quite it's the colour of right now really. Yeah, it's, it's lovely, deep, isn't but it? it's yeah, I really like yeah. that colour. For me what was interesting about doing it was that I spent all these years working, you know, at the high end mm-hmm. um with a lot of makeup brands or beauty brands that were more expensive and I thought how lovely it would be actually. Or, or, or it was to just see what it was like working at a different sort of end of the market, yeah. really. So, given that you live in West London, I wondered if you could just shout about a couple of places that you like going. For someone who's never been here, or maybe is listening to this and is going to do a day here. Oh, okay. What would you recommend? Um, Well, I love the Goldbourne Road, Mm -hmm. um, which is a sort of wonderful mixture of antique shops, and now a bit of fashion shops, and Moroccan cafes, and delis, and, you know, then these great kind of... um, uh, food stands as well there and you know everyone knows about Portobello mm-hmm. 
but they often don't actually get down to the Goldbourne Road, which is at the northern end. So I think that's a a really lovely place that people don't necessarily know about. Um, where else do I like that people won't necessarily know about? The canal. Mm-hmm. The canal's fantastic walk for along walking it. down, yeah. yeah, walking or running or mm-hmm. cycling. And mm-hmm. you can go, you know, either way you go... Um, from Ludbrook Grove, you can go west and head up towards Wilsdon, which is very industrial and quite strange and a bit creepy, but I love it going there. Or you go sort of Paddington into Regent's Park mm-hmm. and along that. And that's a really lovely walk. And again, you you see things that you... You see London from a point of view that you, you often don't see it. Mm-hmm. So that's another one of my sort of favourite West London things. Are you a restaurant or pub person? Restaurant. What I feel about restaurants, I've realised, is that the food is important, but what's really important is that they make you feel good when you go in there. And the way they make you feel good is when they know you. So you kind of have to find your places. That thing of, it, of people, you know, knowing you is, 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 is a big deal and it doesn't matter you know it can be cheap or it can be expensive but mm-hmm. um but we eat interestingly right round here we don't uh we go to Eda um on Camden yeah, yeah which is lovely um but we don't eat that much right round here right final three questions yeah what to your mind has been your greatest achievement professional or personal my son, the absolute no-brainer, um, personal, obviously. Mm. But, um, you know, I never... Uh, I, I thought I'd want a girl, and I, but I knew I was... I kind of guessed I was having a boy, I didn't actually know. And then I only had one child. Um, and, you know, I'm just so pleased that we get on so well, and he's given me such pleasure. And actually... Um, Often when I was at work, I think having a, people say, oh, how did you manage to have a child and do your job? But actually having a child made me able to do my job because it was something that was so much more important that you could mm-hmm. um, have a sense of perspective. And if you could go back and give a younger version of yourself advice, any age, what advice would you give that person? I'd give any person this advice. I thought about it the other day. The thing I would now say to anyone is don't expect that anybody else is going to sort it out for you that you've really got to be aware that then the buck stops with you. And if you're hosting a dinner party and could invite three people dead or alive, who would they be? I know. I find this a very, very difficult question. And the reason why is um, that I'm basically not going to answer it is because any time I've met my heroes, it has been excruciating. Uh, not so much that they've been a disappointment, but that I was my least articulate and uncomfortable with them and never enjoyed it. And so I don't think... The only person I really would like to have had to dinner, uh, just because I could just look at him, uh, is Leonard Cohen. And there's no one else that you would bring along? No, not no. really. I think just a date with Leonard Cohen, actually. <laughs> I mean, Leonard Cohen's brilliant, so let's have him as being your one guest. Right, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you.